Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for joining us. What the heck is going on? Suddenly we have a crash of 2014 and it's in oil, which really nobody expected. In a matter of just a few months, crude oil prices are down a third. Now, you would expect something like this to happen in a global recession or a precipitous slowdown like 2008, 2009. But indeed, we're suddenly hearing all these things about the United States becoming potentially on par with Saudi Arabia and other OPEC producers. This boom that came out of the U.S. heartland out of the middle of nowhere. And yet, you're seeing back and forth between Venezuela, Tehran, no unanimity in OPEC. Should we cut? Should we keep production high? Should we make America try to come down to its knees? We're going to talk about these themes and some other ones amid the big, great oil crash of the last few months. Joining me in studio here is Craig Sheely. He heads the energy and commodities practice at the investment bank, Cary Street Partners. Hey, Robin. How are you today? How goes? All right. And in DC at the Watergate building, no less, is Claire Foran, energy reporter at National Journal. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Claire, tell me what the heck is going on here. I thought that we were inured to a new reality in 2008 when oil prices over the course of several years ran up to nearly, uh, really above $140 a barrel. And everybody said that there's no way you can have a growing global economy where China and Brazil and other emerging market upstarts are competing with the US and oil was never going to fall below triple digits again. And suddenly we're talking about a glut in the system. What's going on? So what's happened is uh, it was really something that, you know, has been building for a while, uh, but then a few factors uh, sort of jumped in around September. So essentially the, the baseline is that fracking, so the shale revolution in the U.S. has just created this absolute massive amount um, of, of oil that sort of flooded, flooded the market and oil is priced globally. So that's driven down the prices. Um, However, you didn't see, you know, a dramatic price drop until about September. And part of the reason for that was that there were, there were disruptions in other major oil producing countries like Libya um, and and some of the, the conflict in those nations that had taken oil out of the market were resolved enough so that a bunch of oil came back online. And as a result, you just had sort of a flood starting in September. And then that combined with less demand than was previously expected in countries like Europe and Japan, uh, as well as increased fuel efficiency in, in places like the U.S. That's all lowered demand. So basically, it's just a simple lots of supply, not as much demand. But what was the tipping point over the last several months? I mean, was there a single button that somebody pushed? Was it a, a shake or a prince somewhere? Because yeah. certainly you don't see that kind of whiplashing volatility, uh, barring some sort of you know international uh, financial crisis or exogenous shock or say a, a currency suddenly being uh, devalued or somebody defaulting on their debt. Yeah, well, well, um, energy experts really point to uh, sort of a lot of the oil production that had been disrupted and taken offline in places like Libya, uh, where uh, internal conflicts were preventing the oil from getting to market enough so that the market sort of seemed stabilized, even though we did have a massive amount of uh, oil coming out of the U.S. But then once um, once that production came back online in the fall, that's when you started to see the snap. And then now it's been accelerated most recently because of decisions by OPEC not to not to alter its production. Craig, let's talk about what's going on here in the States. The United States, here in the U.S., the voracious, fat, happy Americans. Yeah. We've cut our net oil imports by 8.7 million barrels 
since 2006. Now that's equal to the combined oil exports of Saudi Arabia and Nigeria. So put it put another way, we had a trade deficit of 355 billion in oil and gas as recently as 2011. And now we're looking at, at, at a balance by 2018. What changed? Well, uh, we actually, um, from a, if you look at it from a BTU perspective- not, British thermal units. Yeah, British thermal units. So just a measure of energy. We've actually been getting close to parity, if not even been slightly close to approaching a net exporter just based on natural gas. Uh, same technology uh, referenced earlier in the conversation, the fracking technology actually had the biggest impact, the fastest, if you look at the last seven years, seven, eight years, the biggest impact, the fastest happened in the natural gas. That wave happened ahead of what's happened in crude. Um, now, yeah. the two are intertwined. I understand when you're drilling well, for shale oil, for example, there's always going to be some natural gas that, that's entailed in the process. And so even if you're not drilling for gas, it comes out as a byproduct. Well, that's true to an extent. There, there's a, That's not a completely true statement. I mean, actually, one of the reasons why the disconnect occurred, uh, and one of the reasons, when I say the disconnect, what I mean is, um, historically, there's been a much tighter price relationship between crude and and, uh, and natural gas. The idea being that they're somewhat fungible and replaceable. Yeah. Well, you can and, and, retrofit a city right. bus, for example, to run on natural gas. Well, well, but more of what you were saying is that historically, what we've seen is that natural gas was effectively a byproduct of oil wells. Okay, what what actually happened in uh, Barnett uh, shale play in West Texas, and then in the Marcellus in mainly Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and parts of New York. Um, what happened in the Marcellus is that actually, you, that is really a dry gas play. And, and Barnett's largely a dry gas play too, meaning that what you're actually getting at, the resource you're actually getting out of these, these plays, and they're massive. I mean, Marcellus is like an ocean of natural gas. And it's just it's just it's just methane rich natural gas. It's not um, you're actually not getting really any uh, liquids. Out so of was there cells. a technological tipping point for nat gas sometime around 2007 2008? Because if if everybody yeah. is feeling uh, the pain at the pump of four dollar gasoline in the summer of 2008, and, and crude goes to 140 dollars, you would think that people would then switch. Voraciously to natural gas. Did did technology improve at the same time? Well, that that's not an easy swap out, right? So I mean, um, it, you know, certain, you know, if you look at different use cases of 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 the almighty BTU, there certain use cases are relatively easy to swap out, but a lot of them are not. I mean, you know, liquid fuel transportation fuel is not easy to swap out. I mean, you can't just go, you know, it's decide to fill up with. Uh, it's not like cottage cheese for cream cheese. Yeah, it's not no, it's not. It's not that easy. I mean, you got to have a different. You know, you got to have to have a different. Um, uh, essentially, a sort of different front end on your engine. I guess is maybe a. But my question is: suddenly, out of nowhere, I recall uh, in the throes of the, of the financial crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, you're hearing about these this drilling technology that can go down a mile yeah. and go horizontally. And suddenly we're sitting on an asset that we didn't even realize we had. Mm -hmm. And it brings the price of natural gas, what, from uh, $10, 12, uh, $12 yeah. a wholesale unit to almost $2? Yeah, yeah. We, we went from 12 But actually, the peak in natural gas actually happened more in an 07 timeframe. It was actually ahead of the peak in oil by, I think, a little more than a year. So... Um, 
I have to go back and look at the charts, but it was it was a good year and change ahead of you know our peak in oil price was two thousand eight one forty seven something like that and change, and that was August of two thousand seven. What, what, what I want to know, Claire, is how from that point of helplessness when we were brought to our knees at one hundred and forty dollars plus, paying at the pump, people talking about peak oil, and then suddenly North Dakota, I hear last year was declared bigger than the smallest member of OPEC, which is Ecuador. How did that happen? Well, a lot of it is that, I mean, some of it is is essentially that it's like once the investment in in shale has started, it's it's sort of accelerated. I mean, when we're talking about during the recession, uh, you know, economy across the board was suffering. But when you looked at places like North Dakota, it was sort of this one, this big economic bright spot in the country. And that's something that has, because fracking uh, was essentially recession proof. And, and that's something that's attracted a lot of attention from investors. That's something that has really started to be um, something that people want to get in on. You know, people recognize that this is profitable. And and with that, you're seeing more investment. You're seeing the cost to drill come down as people invest and it, it becomes more efficient. And so it just starts to get a lot cheaper. Yeah. No, I mean, you look at it, it in 2008, 2009 timeframe, you were uh, you were looking at a, a break-even cost on a barrel of crude coming out of uh, Bakken play, for example. Bakken is in in North Dakota. Um, so that that play break-even, you know, at least talked about break-even was seventy five, eighty bucks a barrel. Well, you know, coming off of a you know one hundred and forty seven dollar a barrel, that's a hugely that's profitable a, that's a hugely barrel. profitable barrel. Right. So you have a flood of you have a flood of capital come into that come into that play, right? In any play like it. And so all of a sudden- Even the tar sands in Canada, yeah, which is you know, a everything, high even price. Yeah. So alternative every, energy, you suddenly, you saw bio biofuel being stolen in the United States yeah. and grease traps. Yeah, Everybody you, suddenly became you, uh, people are, energy crazy. Yeah, doing all kind of crazy import export stuff, getting biodiesel out of Argentina, bringing ethanol up from Brazil, even if it's not- um, you know, quite kosher from a from a regulatory perspective. You're seeing those kind of things happen. You you were at the time, but so you had this huge huge gap, right? I mean, where you have a you know even high estimates are saying you know seventy five eighty dollars a barrel to get it out of the shale plays, it being crude oil, and you know you're trading it you know north of a hundred. Well, sure, you're going to have a flood of capital come into that. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. Well, then, you know, next thing you know, like any, like any space, especially, you know, capital intensive spaces, you have a lot of people, a lot of smart people and a lot of money go to work um, on something like that. And all of a sudden, you know, now people are talking marginal costs per barrels down around, you know, maybe as low as 25, 30 bucks a barrel up there. How did all these players and that capital survive the swift intensity of the financial crisis, which after all saw crude oil fall from about 140 to $40? 32. Uh, $32, was, yeah. really? Thirty, Yeah, front month. And so if yeah, you were banking, you were literally banking on oil staying in the mid-triple digits when you said, you know what, it's going to be economic for us to drill in the Bakken yeah. or in other places in the United States. Yeah, the thing, the thing though- how did, mean, these, how did these guys not die out? Well, that was a very short-lived- uh, uh, price point. And that was, I mean, literally there, I mean, as, you know, as we all know now, I mean, that was really as much of a liquidity issue as it was a, any type of really discussion about a rational market price, because literally, I mean, there were people who were defaulting on, who were defaulting on payments of tankers, right? And so you literally had suddenly, you know, if you were, if you were, uh, if you had, I mean, you know, Lehman had large positions in, in, uh, in, in crude, right? On their commodity desk. And all of a sudden, you know, those tankers don't have a home. So people are quite literally trying to figure out how to, where to physically put this 
this stuff. And so, you know, you saw front month futures just get absolutely hammered because you have no, you know, you can't deliver the but physical. But the prospecting and the wildcatting continued, Yeah, right? it continued. It continued because I think everybody saw the, you know, the, the long-term price point was going to bounce back, which it did. Now, Claire, I have a stat here. The, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, says that net-net, uh, you look at North Dakota today, um, most of the vast Bakken oil field remains profitable at or below $42 per barrel. And in one county, McKenzie County, it's at $28 per barrel. What gives? Well, um, you know, as I said, technology has become uh, more efficient as we've invested more in drilling. And um, and in certain parts of the country, uh, it is cheaper due to some of the geologic formations and, and just it being less expensive for various reasons, you know, it's just not as it's not as hard to drill into the ground in some areas, uh, and but but it really is sort of surprising when you look back at how it did used to be a lot more expensive, and I think it is it's really raising the question of you know how how long can can shale really withstand this price drop? And if, if it really is as low as 42 or perhaps even below, as some energy experts say, you know, we could, we could see sustained uh, production for a long time, even as prices stay low. Now, the question there is Saudi Arabia, as always, is the 50-ton elephant in this room. It can willy-nilly, almost unilaterally come in and deprive the market of supply or flood the market with supply. Do we have any idea, Craig, uh, what what Saudi Arabia's kind of true break even price is? I mean, that's the true ocean ocean of oil. Yeah, there. I mean, their marginal their marginal cost, which is really, you know, l- let's maybe talk about that just for a second, if we could. I mean, once you have, you know, let's take the Bakken for example, when in you, North Dakota. In North Dakota, when you go into a play like that and you have nothing. Right, you have no infrastructure there. You have no logistics set up. You have, you know, you're not. You don't have. You have any, enormous sunk costs. Yeah, at the you outset. have no, enormous sunk costs. You have no really proven, you know, the the even the most aggressive wildcatters. I mean, they don't. They have to be relatively conservative about what they can realistically expect from a yield. Well, once they get in there, all of a sudden, you know, there's infrastructure that can be shared and 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 utilized amongst the players, and so these costs come down. Well. And what people really focus on in a commodity business is what is your marginal cost of the next barrel, right? To get the next barrel out of the ground, you know, almost on an immediate sort of hand-to-mouth basis, what's my cost of that? In Saudi Arabia, that number is probably next to nothing. I mean, it's like, you know, I've heard and seen analysis that put it anywhere for between, you know, a dollar and change and $5, right? Because it's, it's light, sweet, crude it's basically they're just basically pumping it straight out of the Don't ground. Don't the Saudis and Venezuelans incidentally pay something like ten cents a gallon at the pump? Yeah, yeah. The Venezuela, it's like yeah, five cents a gallon equivalent. Yeah, and and um, but but the but the issue right and that and the issue both of those are great examples of petro states because it's not the cost of oil on a per. Uh, barrel or per you know gasoline on a per gallon, but it's not the cost to them to get it out of the ground. The cost is the social infrastructure that they've put in place and they have to support right because it's all it they're utilizing all of their essentially all of their um, you know oil revenue for for to support various you to know, placate the masses. Pro- yeah, to play, these exactly. are these are by and large not democratic or enlightened <laughs> regimes. They've been kleptocracies. Well, uh, you know, Claire, I, you've Claire, you've written about this quite a bit. I mean, if you look at some of the other players out there, and we'll get into this: Venezuela, Iran, Nigeria. They're not exactly kind of bastions of you know uh, islands of calm in a in a stormy sea. 
No, they're not. And another, much less Vlad Putin's Russia, right? Right. Um, and, and it's interesting because in a lot of these countries, um, especially when you talk about the Gulf states, um, a lot of the oil revenue, I mean, it's gone to enriching the countries sort of across the board, but it's also, you know, as Craig was saying, it's gone to welfare spending. And a lot of countries have really boosted sort of social programs or spending that can, you know, marginally up the quality of life for residents, especially in the wake of the Arab Spring, where you saw, you know, a lot of social unrest really tear sort of regimes down. And, and countries like Saudi Arabia don't want that to happen to them. Uh, so now, on the one hand, they have, especially when you're talking about Saudi Arabia, regardless of what pinch they might feel on a day-to-day basis with prices, they have a lot of money stored away. You know, they have vast reserves that can keep them going for a long time, although not all OPEC members have that. But, you know, Saudi Arabia has to weigh a lot of concerns right now. I mean, it sort of has its day-to-day costs. It has the question of how long can it sort of sustain this. But it also has a lot of pressure from other OPEC members who are pretty angry about this decision. Um, and and that will be something to watch, too. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has, has made a firm stance right now, but a lot of analysts say, you know, OPEC could call another emergency meeting. This could be reversed. And depending on sort of the internal pressures within the group as well. Now, Craig Sheely, uh, before we, we take a break, I want to ask you quickly, you do a Google search of peak oil and that was all the rage in 2008. Uh, yeah. This seems to crop up every time you see oil prices spike on a demand surge. Um, has this kind of put that to bed? Yeah, I think really th- that's that's right. I think peak oil is 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 a is based on old technology, right? I mean, it's sort of it's sort of a um, you know looking at the at at the development of of the computer age before the dawn of the silicon chip, right? I mean, it, that's really it's almost the equivalent of what we've seen with with fracking and and directional drilling and, and everything that's been able to accomplish and the costs associated with that. Um, and so I, I, I really, I think that the sort of peak oil notion is, is probably a, a, a bit of a, bit of a, uh, a holdover from a bygone day at this point, because the other thing that we haven't talked about is, is we've got, there's probably a lot of other places in the world that, you know, that, that have the potential to do the same kind of fracking we've seen in Boston. And technology is bound to come yeah, up with that. Yeah, it's going to, it's, that's happening. Full disclosures is Robin Farzad. We're talking what the heck is going on in the oil patch. Stay with us. Full disclosure, we're talking oil volatility. Suddenly all the rage. Prices are down by a third just since the summer. Uh, Claire Foran, the National uh, National Journal. Uh, you and I were talking about the various different budgetary break-even prices across the globe. When you look at you know, Venezuela, uh, for example, which is uh, budgetarily challenged, the fiscal break-even cost for a barrel of crude is $161 there. Uh, if you look at Iran, it's $131. Nigeria, $126. Russia, it's $105. Uh, so how the heck are they going to reconcile this if we're looking at a period of, of you know, near to intermediate term prices in the mid-60s? Well, I think that the answer to that question is, uh, you know, is is crucial because um, it's going to depend on the country and it's really going to require uh, the leaders of these countries to sort of 
make a priority list and decide, you know, what are they willing to give on and what is sort of a necessity for them. And that's going to depend on the country. So, for example, in Russia, you've already seen um, this kind of come into come into conflict with Russia's uh, military spending plans. Uh, you had the finance minister for the country a few weeks back sort of say, look, we we planned our national budgets on the assumption that oil prices would stay around $100, um, $100 a barrel, and uh, we're not going to be able to, you know, overhaul the military the way that we planned. Um, so you're already sort of seeing that reality, but at the same time, you have, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin saying this isn't going to be something that's going to lead to a drawdown in in Ukraine or in wait, Crimea. Wait, 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 Claire, I am I am shocked, shocked that Goldman Sachs is not selling sophisticated hedges to nefarious regimes. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you not do that? How do these guys, I mean, even even in their most kind of self-absorbed, selfish moment, they have to realize that this is inherently a volatile environment. You have all economists, everyone on Wall Street trying to peg prices, but you're so existentially linked to the price of crude versus your marginal cost of getting it out of the ground. So how are all these regimes unhedged? I mean, are you saying you're surprised that they they didn't take this into account or that they had so... Yeah, you're suddenly hearing, you know, Venezuela's really teetering. Vlad Putin is really hurting. (laughs) Iran is begging for mercy. It's kind of a great example of how how volatile the markets can be. And at the same time, how uh, I would say, you know, and I, I'm not saying this in a chiding way, but sort of how speculators tried, and, tried, and, by all means. <laughs> and, the, and people that are involved in the markets often don't seem to sort of learn lessons from the past and then do sort of, it, it's kind of like when prices are, are at a set level, a lot of times people operate under the assumption that that's, that's going to stay. And, and, it, and to an, a certain extent, you know, even the conversation that we're having now, there's a lot of assumptions are being made that this price drop will be sustained. And we don't know that that will happen either. So I agree with that a lot. I mean, one of the points that I, I've been wanting to work in is if you look at a, you know, we, we sat down a couple of years ago and did sort of post crisis and did a, did a, um, an analysis of crude volatility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reality is about once every 12 to 24 months, you see a price drop in crude of at least 20% that w- will manifest itself in a period of time from three to six months. Okay, so think about that. So we're not that far away from what is actually a somewhat normal uh, drop, you know, drop in the price of crude in terms of its normal cycles. The other thing, it's not completely out of the 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 norm that you would see a seasonal drop in oil prices. That's fairly normal. That coming off of the sort of summer drive, what's you know traditionally referred to as the summer driving season, you have this sort of natural seasonality. You have this kind of natural hump in uh, crude and gasoline. Prices, which tend to start to creep up kind of in the spring as weather gets better. And again, mainly talking about a North American market analysis, but, you know, and then, and then it tails off at some point, you know, from, a you know, August to, to October timeframe. So, you know, it's not the big, the drop has been bigger and there's certainly been a lot of really interesting things going on from a geopolitical backdrop um, and uh, that make this a, a very interesting conversation. But I, I agree with Claire in the sense that, 
you know, we don't really know how out of the how how you know how much of this drop is just normal seasonality, which we would have probably seen a certain degree of anyway, versus how much of this is sort of a pricing a, a new you know, a, a, a sort of new pricing uh, reality that's going to be a, a more of a permanent. So you, you want to talk about reality, Claire. Uh, this is this could be like the real world OPEC edition, right? You have these roommates in a <laughs> yeah. house. They absolutely don't get... I've never seen this lack of unanimity from that cartel. You saw that it acted together in the 70s. It even got its act together when, when oil prices collapsed um, in... in um, uh, the, the the dying days of 1998, and they kind of came back, and they had to vastly cut back production. It's kind of a collective cover your ass thing that if we don't act together, um, we're all going to suffer. So we have to get together. And yet now you're seeing Saudi Arabia likes this idea of spiting uh, Iran, lest it become too uh, uppity in terms of regional hegemony. Saudi Arabia also wants to spite uh, the nascent U.S. producers, which we were talking about in Oklahoma, in mm-hmm. North Dakota. We have uh, Russia doing its own thing, Venezuela begging for mercy because you have Hugo Chavez and his cult of personality no longer there, but his crony, his successor saying, I really need $160 crude to cover my sins and pay for people here. And why won't OPEC help me and, and, and cut production? So have you ever seen this kind of disarray just in, in sentiment and position within OPEC? Yeah, well, that's. I think that what observers of what's going on now often say is that divisions seem to be, uh, divisions look stark right now and and possibly more stark than they have been in the past. But we are talking about, um, you know, a cartel that, while it is organized around um, a guiding principle, does unite a number of countries that are extremely different. You know, some of them may have more similar political backgrounds than others. But as you yourself said, you know, I mean, some of them are essentially political rivals that are all you know, united for for this purpose to to try to kind of pull the strings on oil markets, but we have seen disarray in the cartel in the past, so this isn't completely new. Um, and and actually, if you look back to so in I believe the 1980s, there was a similar a scenario where uh, the cartel uh, wanted to to talk about cutting production as a way to stabilize prices. And at that point, Saudi Arabia decided to sort of take the bullet, although it thought that it was acting with the full backing of the group. It thought that it was, everybody was going to cut prices and that was going to, everybody was going to cut production, sorry, and that was going to prop up prices. I I incidentally remember that written into the script of a Dallas episode I was watching with my mom. (laughs) Well, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Bobby Cruz going to $4. (laughs) <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Anyway, another reference that dated me. I know you're very young. I'm sure for Saudi Arabia, it was something um, of, you know, an extremely dramatic episode. And and in fact, what what many people say was sort of instructive about that time for the Saudis is that they lost significant market share by pulling back their own production. And guess what? The rest of the group didn't really follow suit, at least not initially. And and that made Saudi Arabia pretty angry. And, and so now... The Saudis are sort of saying, you know, why should we take the bullet? You know, it doesn't benefit us as oil producers for the price to be declining, but why should we be the ones who sort of pulls back, loses our market share just so that the U.S. can sort of flood flood the market and, and regain that ground? And, and they don't want to be the one to sacrifice themselves. And part of that is because they're remembering what's happened in the past when there has also been discord within the group. So do you, Craig... Mm-hmm. Sheely, believe that um, if if kind of protected and nurtured, what the United States is doing domestically could turn into something that could rival the Saudis for export hegemony, not just domestic consumption. 
Well, uh, you know, I'm not... In aggregate. Look at yeah. it from a BTU's perspective. You you know, yeah. you made that important point before yeah. that, you know, to, to the extent that they're not as immediately fungible and replaceable as they are. We look at the United States in terms of its caloric impact yeah. on uh, on energy. Um, that it, if it could tomorrow at the snap of a finger load barges and pipelines and send this stuff around the globe, yeah. would you see such a collapse in prices? Well, that's, I mean, that's one thing. It's a very important point, right? Because, I mean, we are, we, we still have in place, as far as I know, Claire, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we still have our, uh, we cannot actually export crude oil, right? In the United yes, States. Yes, we still have the ban. We still in have place. The, the ban on, on, so while in theory it's a global market, it's kind of not really, right? You have a, you have a WTI or West Texas intermediate market, and then you have a Brent crude market. Can you explain that? So Brent crude is really effectively your international crude oil and West Texas intermediate WTI is what, you know, sort of the general call sign of it. It's, that's the commodity that's traded here domestically. Right? And what's the, what's the difference in spot prices recently? Well, I mean, you know, we've seen, we've seen pretty wide spreads between crude. I mean, it's been 10, as much as 10, $15 a barrel. I don't, I actually don't know what it is right now. I primarily so is that a WTI. function of the export prohibition and the fact that the yeah. infrastructure is not there actually to move this stuff yeah. in mass overseas? That's right. I mean, well, I mean, I think the infrastructure is there. Uh, I mean, it's really just tankers and 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 ports, which we we have that. I think that's really policy. It's really policy. Yeah, more than anything, it's policy. Um, and you know, I mean, so you don't really have right now. Um, even when, you know, even when it does make sense, the, the other thing that I think is also important to mention here, while, you know, it's, it, it, there's a, there's a lot of nuances in the crude oil market, right? I mean, crude oil is not crude oil is not crude oil. So like Venezuela's oil for the most part is heavy sour, which that's, is, it's is called lower, dirty oil, right? Dirt, and it requires yeah. more refining to get it to uh, international snuff. Right. So, I mean, you know, when, when prices drop, in you know what we call the oil market actually you know and this gets back to some of the some of the issues between the OPEC nations you know what Saudi produces primarily is really light sweet easy to refine oil i mean that's the vast majority of their production really good really good stuff really easy to refine you know i hear um, refiners themselves like in in the united states uh, actually are leery of venezuelan oil because it has the particulate matter yes it it requires much more heavy maintenance expenditure you get rocks and things stuck in the gears yeah yes so you would have to have a pretty high price of oil for them to to be willing to take on that maintenance that's right i mean so so venezuela you know is an interesting case i mean because when that price drops when we see sort of West Texas Intermediate, we see Brent crude, we see those prices dropping. It is actually amplified in these lower grades because those discounts, you know, are still kicking in and sometimes get actually get increased because, you know, the efficiency, the ability to process these better better grades of crude is much higher, right? So that's a, there's some, those are nuances and finer, you know, points, but it has a big impact when it actually ripples through the- But you also talked about the big impact on the street in Venezuela, which has been a pass-through economy since Hugo Chavez rose to power- in 98, the last yeah. time oil prices were really brought down to their knees, he has paid off several constituencies there. Isn't there, isn't there a show in Caracas called Alo, Alo Comandante or something yes. where he would go on and people would come on and say, I can't afford to build a chicken coop. And he's like, send this man five bags of cement. Like he would do that. It was a clear oh, yeah, pass through the Bolivarian leftist we, regime. We can have, Robin, we can have a whole show. Well, no, this, you are, you are intimately Maduro. informed in this and in, in that yeah. your wife is Venezuelan. You've Correct. spent a lot of time there. You've yeah. noticed the crazy things going on with money laundering and people, yep. you know, arbitraging toilet paper over the border yeah. into Colombia because the entire economy is at the utter mercy of crude oil prices. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now that the place is the the crude oil. What's essentially happened in Venezuela um, is the crude oil revenues are are effectively being used to to provide everything for the country, and they're also being used to this vain attempt um, at uh, at 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 stabilizing and maintaining value of the currency. Um, and then, you know, I, I, you know, I, the, the darker side of me theorizes that that's primarily a vehicle for, for corruption, right? Because I mean, just to give you an example, I was in Venezuela, what, four weeks ago, uh, I was in the Island of Margarita and please don't uh, give your whereabouts when you come here to <laughs> rip on the Venezuelan regime or, you know, we didn't give you a nom de guerre. Or anything. I was Sorry. at this exact address and, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want this to be an episode of Homeland. Jeez. Well, I mean, my, you know, my, my hotel bill, which was, you know, which was a really nice place and really nice meal and, uh, meals and so forth was, was one tenth of what it would have been, uh, had I bought, uh, Bolivares at the at the official the exchange rate. Either. Yeah, I bought I bought Bolivares at the at the gray market rate, and it cost me one tenth. Right. So so that's a. I mean that that, that just gives you a, a sense. I mean that there is a there is a massive spread that's being that the, essentially in addition to all the social programs, oil money is using is being used to largely fund that spread, right? So if people are bringing in various things, if they're able to get money, get dollars at, uh, if they're able to get do- buy dollars at the official exchange rate. And you hear the same thing, the, the arbitrage in Iran in the island yeah. of Kish where anyone can get an iPhone tablet or, or you know, there are interesting artful uh, solutions or ways yeah. around sanctions. Claire, uh, what, are, what are the other kind of uh, choke points? We hear a lot about Nigeria breaking into, and that's a country that is unusually leveraged to the price of oil. It's, it's, blessing and its curse in the Niger Delta. Um, where are some other places that are really, really on um, geopolitical tenterhooks looking at this price really closely? Yeah, so as we mentioned, Russia, Venezuela, Nigeria, Libya, also um, is a place where there's still unrest. And and even when you look at um, a place like uh, in Iraq, you know, the state is trying to fight back um you know, uh, essentially ISIS, other terrorist organizations, and and that's not going to be an effort that will be easy to accomplish as as the state increasingly feels the pinch of of falling oil prices. So. Now, Craig, you know Warren Buffett said that famous line that when the tide goes back out, you see who's not wearing their swim trunks, <laughs> right? And is you, you have seen some pieces written yeah. about that over the last week that Absolutely. there's been such a long period of complacency with triple digit oil and new reality and new paradigm yeah. thinking. It happens all the time. These Minsky moment type events. Are are, are you? Do you think that some major institutions are um, systemically uh, levered to the price of oil in a way that could bring down other big institutions and even economies? Are, are you talking about in a Lehman Brothers sense? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, I mean, it, it it's you know, um, we have seen, like I said, I, I would argue that we have not seen volatility, even with a you know one third drop in the last couple months. While that is, you know, a pretty strong drop, it is not outside. It is not outside of the norm of um, not that far outside of the norm of what you might expect. With uh, with crude oil volatility, but so, you layer in derivatives, you layer yeah. in hedge funds making these bets, looking at crude oil increasingly as a treasury type asset to go short or long. When you have to unwind things in mass, and you, you get hints of forced selling. Look, I know a lot of this is speculative, pun yeah, intended. Right, but uh, that's what we have to worry in a prolonged period. You know, the old reality was crude would go between this band of 
ten dollars and twenty two, twenty three dollars. Yeah, we were we were we were trained and inured for this to now be triple digit ad infinitum, and now yeah. people are talking. You know, there's some respected people out there saying thirty, forty dollars is possible. Yeah, no, I I I think it certainly is possible. Um, you know, and and the other thing too is, I, I mean, a couple of things. I think I, I can't think of any right off the top of my head. I can't think of any you know large financial institutions that I'm aware of that are so heavily levered on the long side that you know you might have some type of systemic risk like you did with Lehman. Um, I, I'm not aware of anybody like that uh, that's not you know at least you know, well hedged. There's certainly a lot of big players in oil that, you know, if they went bust, it would be a problem. You know, but the world in 1998 yeah. was ill-equipped to handle the rubles collapse. And you yeah. wonder now, even though they've banked hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign reserves, that yeah. they at least retain some modicum of discipline to to take some money off the table I when mean, prices were high. I mean, I do think, I do think, you, you, you know, Venezuela is, um, and potentially a few of these other regimes, I think that you got to look at their debt and 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 say okay you know are they going to be able to pay this debt if they don't have if they don't have these kind of oil these kind of oil revenues i mean that that's probably the biggest sort of institution and then you look at who's long to that the other thing you know is i think you know you've got uh, you got to look at the drilling sector you got to look at all the, the oil field services sector as well because you know they they have huge leverage it's essentially sort of secondary and tertiary exposure to the underlying commodity price but we are getting to a point where you know, you you are going to see some slowdown, I think, in capital spending, right? And 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 if that if that if that continues. Now hold these thoughts, guys. We are talking the new crude realities of plunging oil prices. Uh, full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. Stay with us. Full disclosure, thanks for joining us. We are joined by Claire Foran, energy reporter at National Journal, and Craig Sheely, who heads the energy and commodities practice at the investment bank Cary Street Partners. Claire, uh, will you tell me what uh, this whipsawing volatility does to uh, this movement, this this um, enthusiasm that we saw for hybrid and electric vehicles? I mean, Tesla, for example, being the market darling over the past two, three years. If oil suddenly collapses even more, and you, you have people increasingly talking about $2 $2 gallon gasoline, and you're going to see SUV sales jump up again and, and automakers become complacent. What does that do for the lot of clean energy planning? Well, um, as you said, you do start to see as soon as uh, as soon as gas prices are, are really get to be low the way that they are now, you know, relative to what they were, um, you know, even just six months ago, you do immediately start to see that reflected in consumer spending and in, in the kind of cars that people are buying. So there's already some preliminary numbers out now that show that, you know, in September, for example, when the price slide started, people started buying more trucks than they had been in the post-recession era. And there's, you know, people are starting to anecdotally say Hummers could be making a comeback. Um, the numbers for clean, uh, clean cars, hybrid cars are looking like they're poised to go down. So you do see right away um, gas prices changes. Uh, change, you know, people start to buy different types of cars. That being said, I think an important point to be made is that we do have a lot of fuel efficiency standards on the books now, and that's fundamentally changed the way that a lot of these cars are made to the point where even these heavy-duty cars and trucks uh, and bigger cars and trucks that do get 
less gas mileage, they are more efficient than right, they Claire, used I'm to convinced, be. I'm convinced that the, the terrifying experience of $140 crude and uh, $4 gasoline at the pump caused that kind of discipline. You know, at the same time, Detroit collapsed and, and they were told if you're going to come out of this, you have to get religion and you have to be lighter and smarter. Yeah. And it wasn't just hybrid vehicles. Their entire fleet uh, economy went up by a few miles per gallon. Yeah, well, I think that's true. I mean, I think it's a response to it's a response to what the market has done in the past, but it is also partially due to the regulation that we have on the books that have tightened efficiency standards across the board, even for gas guzzlers. Craig, isn't there something to be said then for the discipline of higher oil prices? I mean, I'm going to be the the, the villain and the straw man here. Uh, you had an experience in the period <laughs> of of triple digit oil where you yeah. went off to start a biofuel. Uh, plant in Virginia. If I you did. Could, you know, quickly tell us about that and, and sure. what the immediate lessons were learned when prices collapsed. Um, well, you know, one lesson is uh, never invest in ethanol. Um, but that's a whole <laughs> other, you know, that's a whole other uh, discussion we could have. But I mean, I you know, we we built a we built a generation one point five, generation two. Uh, ethanol plant designed to run on small grains, primarily winter barley grown in the mid-Atlantic region, built it here in Hopewell, Virginia, not, oh gosh, 20 minutes from 30 minutes from where we're sitting right now. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's now running, it's back up and running after, after a extensive restructuring and, and, um, and sale process. Uh, but, you know, I think that the, the reality is, um, you know, I think in, in this type of oil price environment that we seem to be in right now, you know, I do think you're going to see some interesting struggles um, amongst, I think in particular, kind of the the new technology players. Right, because it makes yeah. it vexingly difficult to plan, whether you're an airline yeah. and you have to buy forward hedges or, yeah. you know, you're a, you're a business, you're, you're, you're someone with a fleet of 12 or 15 trucks, you have to budget for fuel. Yeah. And when you see... Uh, the kind of volatility that we saw, you know, most recently in 2008, 2009, when prices can go from $4 and everybody's talking about, you know, this is the new reality, $4, yeah. and then they collapse in the financial crisis. And now yeah. you're seeing a, not as a precipitous collapse, but how do you plan? And and how, you know, when the United States, you know, barring kind of some of the policy solutions that you want to get into, uh, this money just flows into U.S coffers and disposable income at the per capita level and then just flows out of it wildly when prices shoot yeah, up that's right. to the OPEC regime. So what gives? Well, it does now that's I mean that's the beauty of it, right? It doesn't all flow to the OPEC regimes now. I mean, uh, you know, it's flowing dom to domestic producers right in the shale in the shale boom. I think the, the other thing So um, the gallon of gas that I'm getting at Chevron down the street here or Exxon is that could you say that that's it, it? It doesn't matter if it's refined from North Dakota oil or anything. That the fact that North Dakota is there it's inundating fungible. the market, it's yeah. fungible. It, it means that that gallon could have originated where, where in that, Brazil. Or, yeah, where that gallon came from is frankly irrelevant. I mean, um, you know, the there there is no traceability requirement right in the in the in the refined products business. So, you know, ironically, you know, biofuels, which only represent about you know, roughly now 10% of the market um, on a volume basis, you know, they actually, in order to meet the EPA standards, for the most part, have to be traceable back to origin. Um, and in some cases, uh, for advanced and cellulose, it has to be traceable all the way back to the land where the crop grew, right? But there were these holy grail concepts. We're going to convert waste yeah. to, to gasoline. We're going to convert, you know, switchgrass. Yeah. Miss Canthus, I think George W. Bush had it in a State of the Union address. Switchgrass, yeah. The hydrogen economy. And then all that stuff, Claire, yeah. seems to be shelved when gas prices collapse. That's right. 
Yeah, and in some ways, though, I think that people who do support biofuels or alternative energy would almost say that the fact that investment in alternative energy sources gets shoved to the side so quickly when market favors fossil fuels almost makes the case for there to be policies in place that encourage investment because it's really hard for anything that's less well-established as an energy source to compete when the market is heavily favoring fossil fuels that way. Now, should this then, I mean, this begs the question, when you look at uh, the potential of asymmetric warfare between currencies and countries, and Saudi Arabia now has the United States and Iran in its crosshairs, right? So should this be a a more urgent national security issue, Craig, for uh, the Obama uh, administration and Capitol Hill, and that we need to suddenly declare some of these North Dakota and Oklahoma players um, national champions? or national security concerns? Because I think that would be hugely controversial if you look at the Keystone yeah, Pipeline. No, There's I, no unanimity I, even over fossil fuels. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big free market guy, so I, I have a hard time with any notion but free, of- But here's the deal. It's yeah. not a free market when you're dealing with OPEC. Or when I, when I bring no, up the not. concept of asymmetric warfare, uh, yeah. the Saudis unilaterally, state-owned, you're dealing with state-owned counterparts. Correct. And yeah. so if people are out there, companies to play the vagaries of the bankruptcy cycle, they could never hope to compete in a two or three year price war. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it depends, right? But the, I, you know, I, I tend to like to let the market sort that kind of things out. And and I do, I mean, yes, I mean, I agree. These are, these are, these are sovereign nations. I think we are in far better position to compete uh, as a country today than we were, um, you know, even five years ago. And, you know, that, that market cycle itself is what spurs these, the investment. Now, you know, question being, there's a whole bunch of other questions around the alternative and the clean tech stuff, which is all about you know the environmental impact. And you know, are we are we actually capturing, um, you know, the are we actually monetizing or capturing or taxing the the the, the ancillary costs associated with burning fossil fuels? Right. They used which to call a, them externalities, externalities right? The pollution, yeah. global warming, and yeah, costs CO2. that are borne by by everyone. Right. Well, sometimes they're and, referred to as social costs. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, that's a, that's a question of are we capturing those? I mean, I mean, I think the the reality is we aren't um, right now, and so that's a whole other discussion. You know, um, it, you know, in terms of there's sort of two two separate lines. They one is what do we do with domestic fossil fuel production, but another one is you know how do we treat clean tech, which is you know somewhat domestic fossil fuel offsets but um and then and then lastly i mean the other thing we i talked about it a little bit earlier but you know I, i'd like to beat that drum one more time which is natural gas i mean i think we are going to see natural gas uh we have not yet seen it happen in a big way yet but i i actually think we will begin to see natural gas start to compete even with crude even with lower price crude um in Fleets. I mean, it's already happened, certainly, in fleets. Yeah, when municipalities have to plan, you know, this gets back to the idea, Claire, of planning, that if you get uh, some idea that, you know, gasoline is going to cost this much and there's a huge, there's a a chasm between the price of of the calories. We talk about the BTUs. You can get more bang for the BTU buck with natural gas. Then you'll make the investment in retrofitting something. But if oil prices, if crude oil prices and conventional gasoline prices keep collapsing, a lot of these 
municipalities and and places that have retrofitted their fleets are going to start looking pretty dumb. And then there's no argument to be made for the the majors like the Exxon, the the Shells, the Mobiles, um, the the, the Chevrons to go out and retrofit their gas stations with uh, natural gas infrastructure. That gap is still extremely wide, Robin. I mean, you know, you're talking about... You're, you're talking about, you know, if you look at the cost of a BTU, I mean, it's if, if you were to compare uh, dry gas with, um, let's say, propane uh, or dry gas, maybe a better one would be dry gas versus diesel on right. a BTU basis. It's like you know, I agree, seven, but, eight times but more it's not But it's not a pure um, alternative where you can just show up at the pump and hit super regular, no. medium grade or natural gas or propane or no. switchgrass, right? right. They're huge. They're huge lags and there have to be policy ideas. Yeah. And companies, frankly, uh, you know, it, it took a hundred years to build the infrastructure of gas stations that we have across <laughs> the United yeah. States. You know, you want to get a Tesla on the West Coast, you have a, a, a network of of charging stations, but you have yeah. to pay quite a premium for a vehicle like a Tesla, Claire. Right. I mean, I think that getting back to your question just about, you know, OPEC is this is extremely centralized plant, sort of this centralized planning mechanism. And on the other hand, you have the U.S., which is, is never going to be that. But I do think that we will see, and, and there's certainly speculation that there may be some policy responses around this issue, uh, especially if crude prices stay low. And sort of the biggest uh, kind of pressure point right now is is whether or not the ban on, on exports should be lifted. And that seems something that is unlikely to sort of speed through Congress, even with Republican majorities in in both houses, partially because um, consumers are really wary of that ban because they don't totally understand. And to be honest, so experts don't totally understand or agree on what exactly would happen to gas prices if that ban is lifted. But there are certainly signs that the administration may move to loosen just ever so slightly and continue to loosen the taps on exports, which is something that uh, if producers at home are sort of feeling the pinch of low prices, if they get to start exporting a little bit, even if it's just an incremental in incremental amounts, that might be something that would help them and bolster the economy if if oil prices start now, Claire, to... Now, Cl- Claire, I know you are a uh, young, really promising journalist. I understand you just got your learner's permit. Congratulations, by the way. But I was around <laughs> when Jimmy Carter donned a cardigan and told us to mind our thermostats during the oil shock of the late 70s and early 80s. And it seems like every president in succession has come in, you know, Ronald Reagan's people come in subsequently and tear off the solar panels atop the White House. And then, uh, you know, the, the oil suddenly becomes a national security issue again under Bush 41, and then under Clinton less so, and under George W. Bush, it's like we have to have a, a State of the Union level uh, national campaign, you know, for or against this. And Obama had to inherit it. You, you've seen this as a constant meme of a national energy policy and focus. And if you even X out partisanship in Washington, this is obviously never going to happen. It's one of those. It's one of those things where you're. you're it's so binary between pure market forces and uh, government policy coming in and commanding and controlling. Uh, how we price carbon, how we price consumption, um, whether we pick national champions. Is it hydrocarbon? Is it is it uh, electric? Is it hybrid? Is it, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's all over but, the place. But actually on the issue of crude exports specifically, you have seen 
this very incremental policy shift where you haven't had, you know, any major action. We have this ban in place. It's been in place since the 70s, and, and it hasn't been struck down. But we had in June the Commerce Department sort of very quietly reclassified some of the way it, it, it defines what an export is and started to loosen the taps. And that yeah. was something that energy analysts said was, you know, that was a surprise, but it, it also wasn't a, you know, it wasn't necessarily market moving the way that lifting the ban would be. And and a lot of people think that that kind of incremental change is probably what we're going to see. So I would say yeah. that there is potentially a middle ground. I mean, yes, it would be policy action, but there may be something in between, you know, a, some dramatic policy intervention and pure, um, you know, pure free market. Well, again, this gets back to the the notion that you know a BTU is not a BTU, a, a, a barrel accrued is not a barrel accrued. I mean, you know, you take, you know, you take uh, um, uh, gas coming out of the Bakken, natural gas. It's got a lot of propane, a lot of ethane, a lot of butane. Those things can be separated, sold as other products. They can be exported. Um, you know, you've got uh, you've got different grades of oil. Again, you know, once once you get into the refined products, you have a lot more ability to export those refined products. So, you know, maybe crude doesn't find its way out of the country in the form of of raw crude oil, but it can certainly find its way out of the country in various other. Eight uh, percent of crude oil production globally goes into just the manufacture of plastics. Right, and and a big chunk of that's floating around in the ocean, but that's a whole other discussion. But the, but the, but yes, I mean, and, and those, and you're starting to see some reshoring, right? Of different manufacturing activities, including plastics and plastic precursors because of the relatively low cost of natural gas and crude coming back here. Now, guys, there's been a call uh, intermittently for more aggressive um, uh, gasoline taxing in the United States. You saw it with Ross Perot in 1992. You didn't expect to see it out of the independent camp. You saw it on the right with Charles Krauthammer in uh, 2008 when we saw $4 gasoline. He's saying that you have to as a government, be able to straddle this and make sure that the money doesn't just flow off uh, to uh, nefarious regimes when gas prices go up, at least if you put a tax on it, that the United States could husband this kind of uh, windfall and invest it in in technologies that would help us wean ourselves over time. Why isn't that the case? Well, Krauthammer wanted to use those taxes to to reduce uh, income taxes, right? He went. He, I mean, you know, the typical. Um, he, he just wanted to offset, you know, various forms of income taxes. No, but the point, but, the point, the point is very valid. There, yeah, this money is but, just as a net exit in well, the United States and exacerbating our our trade deficit. Claire, yeah. I mean, how do you how do we yeah. propose to 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 put a cap on that? Well, I think that the the proposal for a gas tax, it's an interesting, um, it's a sort of, a, I, I feel like it's kind of this classic policy um, conundrum where on the one hand, that would be, um, well, for example, to talk about Krautheimer, he had talked a little bit about how a gas tax would be more efficient than what we're trying to do in many ways by imposing complex layers of bureaucracy that will increase fuel efficiency in vehicles. Because his point was, if you tax it, people are just going to buy more fuel efficient vehicles vehicles or they won't buy gas guzzlers. And it's true. It would be if, if that's your aim and people could disagree or agree on you know what they'd want that to achieve. But if that was your aim, it would be a lot more efficient. But a lot of times in politics, what is most efficient is not necessarily what sells, even if it does make sense. And and for politicians, gas prices are such a big political pressure point. People are not, my mom, my dad, they're not buying oil. You know, they don't, even though the price of oil is directly linked to the price of gasoline, what they care about is the price of the pump. So any sort of policy that would propose to raise the gas tax, and there, there have been some renewed calls 
recently saying, you know, if there was ever a time to do it, now would be the time. We could raise it a little bit. People would still have low prices. But the thing is, is people love the prices being low and they don't want to hear anything about prices going up. So it's kind of a political non-starter. It is well, and and politicians also. I mean, they don't they don't ever want to get up in front of people and admit the the fundamental truth of of oil and pretty much any commodity, which is nobody really knows what's going to happen in the future, right? I mean, yeah. if I've learned if I learned anything in my misadventures in ethanol uh, and commodities, it's been that you know, and, and what I try to you know help people figure out today is how to minimize their exposure to future risk because you can't know; it's impossible to know uh, that you are going to discover a more efficient way to. And all of a sudden, we're going to see you know sixty dollar crude, right? I mean, we you can't know that, right? And or or vice versa, right? And yeah. so, I mean, there's no there's so many factors that go into these price points, um, and it is it is absolutely impossible to predict those things. And and that that's a fundamental conundrum for any politician, right? Because they they are completely incapable of getting up in front of people and saying they you know I, don't, I can't I've yet to see one that is actually capable of getting up in front of people and saying I, I don't really know. But take. Right. <laughs> you know, on that on that same basis, uh, and in closing, uh, we're going to be riding twenty uh, inch iPad hoverboards in three years. So uh, a lot of great I things hope, can happen so. in that uncertainty. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire Foran, energy reporter at National Journal, who joined us out of the Watergate Building in DC. Thank you. And Craig Sheely, who heads the energy and commodities practice at the iBank Carey Street Partners. Full disclosure. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back at you next week. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. 